Welcome to Robot Friends, a podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 17, Eigenrobot vs. Poultry. I, I did get... Alright, it's being recorded. Great. I'll start recording now. Oh, okay. I don't have permission to record. Oh, I can give you permission. Uh, you know, whatever. Okay, I'm recording. Hopefully that'll be fine. And uh, I guess we'll just see. Let's fucking go. Okay. Hey, all. Uh, welcome, Egg Prophet. Welcome, Crispy Chicken. We have been running around from platform to platform trying to figure something out that will let us all record. We've ended up on Zoom. So not only are we barbarians, the sound quality is not going to be as good as usual. Apologies for that in advance. Um, how are you guys doing today? I'm doing great. I actually think that was a great warm up. I feel great. I feel like we're now already in the podcast zone. Yeah, I'm in some kind of a zone. <laughs> I'm in an armchair. I uh, finished breakfast about 10 minutes before we were supposed to get on. So I'm nice and full and won't have to move from my comfy armchair for the next oh two hours. So <laughs> nice. Excellent. Snug egg like. So uh, in one of the other incarnations of this episode, Crispy was suggesting that we talk about the, the linguistic innovations that have occurred over the last year, some of the circumstances that necessitated their creation, and uh, shit, I don't know. Take it away, man. Okay, well, here's one thing. I think the notion of talking over people is completely different than it was when we were all in person, right? Like, we were always taking cues from each other physically, and now, like, you have to be more aggressive in order to try to get heard or just completely not get heard or be someone who really waits for pauses. But all of the feedback pretty much is auditory and it's at a delay. And so I think like the politeness factor of talking in audio is completely changing. Really? Okay. So do you mean, for example, over Zoom calls, um, like you don't necessarily see some of the, the signals that people are sending? Or... Right. right. But I think if you even talk to people in person now, you're going to see that turn taking is way more common, at least in my perception of like my personal sample size, because people are used to having to turn take. Because if you try to jump in in a Zoom call, likelihood is actually there's a delay and you're overriding somebody. Oh, shit. Okay. Do you, are we doing that right now? I think so, right? Like, I think in a normal conversation, if it was just us, like, having a beer around, then I would already be talking over you and whatever. But have you noticed that we're all waiting, like, a full beat before someone, like, after someone talks before talking? Yes. It's real eerie. <laughs> uh it's especially weird when you start to think about it, too. Like, I've been on a bunch of Zoom calls, and they begin to use, like, the raise hand feature totally. to talk to people... To, for, to get somebody's turn started. And it just feels like you're back in a classroom, you know, you're thrust back into elementary school and the meeting host is at the front of the room. They're the teacher and they're calling upon people to, you know, answer their questions or go in or only one person has the talking stick. And it's really, it's not very organic of an environment. It's, it's really as if you're back in a classroom and it's structured and, I think that sometimes seeps into this kind of conversation you get. Yeah. I, you know, actually I think one, what there might be a counter technology to break this down specifically drinking the, the last conversation that I had that felt really organic was with disconcerta and we were both getting shit faced on, on air. And 
I noticed we were talking over each other a lot and kind of having a really good back and forth in, in that sort of organic nature. And I think just getting drunk was able to do it for us. Well, you guys will be happy to know that I'm drinking a pale ale right now because that's exactly what we need. King. <laughs> oh, uh, speaking of which, I know, I know you by your voices now. I'm not sure anybody else does. Uh, do you guys want to like just state your handle and, and what the hell you're doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm Who Made Me Crispy, also known as Crispy Chicken or Hori Winter Chicken. Uh, I'm a, I, I study language in, in the Academy, the Glorious Academy, and I'm here to talk shit. Um, I'm Egg Prophet on Twitter uh, and a few other places, not too many. Um, I'm an undergraduate student, um, and I'm on Twitter to make friends and break things and talk about eggs. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so this is this is actually super interesting. Um, I don't know, Crispy. Do you want to do you want to keep going about the language um, now that now that we have everybody like tagged to a voice? Hell yeah. I mean, oh, there's just so much stuff. So I feel like one of the things that's like really subtle. It's not even like a discrete thing, but you're going. We were seeing a lot more of is people have accepted that labels are really short term. And so they kind of expect a label to kind of be squeezed out. So I feel like, you know, even the idea, like, I don't know, of like, you can't even say like something like alt-right anymore, even as like, uh, as an insult, because it's been squeezed out. And people are now on this kind of mill of trying to invent new labels. And I think so, they're kind of running out of space. Yeah, go ahead. So you mean like a, a euphemism, like treadmill, but, but faster? Yes, and to identify new groups. So, right, a euphemism treadmill comes about because there's a consistent, like a, a persistent thing that you keep wanting to refer to, but gets weird to refer to in a certain way. And I uh -huh. think instead what's happening is there's kind of so much chaos that people are referring to new groups of people with new labels that kind of recall old labels more than they recall the same group that it was referring to in order to basically counter. And I think one of the reasons that's happening is a lot of statements are being made in opposition to something. And so you can kind of counter a new group at every phase. You don't have to be repulsing by the same group as long as your in-group recognizes that you're kind of keeping the boundaries, the perimeter of your space. And since people's like kind of rhetorical perimeters have grown smaller, they can kind of shoot in any direction and be hitting an enemy. So this is like mm. new type of guy accelerationism. Exactly. That's the perfect term for it. It's like a sort of indiscriminate discrimination. You know, you just hate everyone. So you're going to call them words. Um, and then, you know, put something on that you can just dislike. Plus one. Yeah. So, mm. so like what, what, what are your favorite instances of this? Oh damn, that's or, or least favorite. Like, do any of them do any of them make you particularly mad, or are they? Is it all just kind of an undifferentiated slurry? I've got to admit, the one, and this probably isn't fair, but like, I don't think it's really the worst one. But the one that makes me angriest is Karen, just because I feel like I know so many nice Karens, and it's it's a bit ridiculous. But then I see Karens like being like no it's okay to do this and i'm like oh god this is totally messing up the linguistic waters like you're not going to be able to come back to this because now like karen is it doesn't mean anything right i mean it has certain cultural associations for sure but it doesn't even, it's not even a description it's just a name and so i feel like now really anything goes and that kind of scared me yeah yeah 
Do you have a sense that words mean less and less? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Amir Mm -hmm. was talking about that. um, And I think he's going to be on this podcast at some point that he just feels like it's just hard to just explain things anymore. That it's just, and I kind of, at first I was like, I don't know. I think this is a bit, you know, over, uh, overdone, but I was thinking about it. I was like, no, I just try less to explain things because I already kind of implicitly feel that. And I think he's totally right. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, for myself, it's, I used to write things out. I used to, you know, I, I, I used I used to have opinions. I used to try and convince people of things, but I just don't do that anymore. If I think about something, if I, I, I don't even try to convince, shit, I don't try to convince myself. When I have a thought, I write it out in the most compact way I possibly can that gets the point across with some of the right connotations. And I tweet it and I don't fucking argue with anyone. I don't care if anyone agrees with me. I don't care if I agree with myself. I, I, I just like, it doesn't matter anymore. And may, maybe it is partly just that things are moving so quickly. And then maybe partly that also none, none of this means anything. I agree. And I have this theory, which I think kind of sounds like a, a boomer conspiracy theory, but, but take me at, consider this, right? I think common sense is breaking down. And I don't mean that like people don't know what common sense is. I mean, what common sense is, is enough of a shared narrative that if I believe that if I go to New York, I can talk to New Yorkers and we can understand each other and kind of, I can be asking questions and expect answers that have some kind of intersubjective stability. And I think now you don't know what you're getting. There are a bunch of narratives throwing around and you don't dare ask a question because you don't even know what the answer is going to mean if you ask it. And I think that's increased the cognitive load of people and actually made them less likely to create new narratives. So it's kind of this reinforcing cycle. Oh, shit. Hmm, that's really bleak. I think bleak is much more fun than twisted. I always watch bleak anime. I definitely see it happening, though. Um, Yeah, I've since the pandemic, like I I live seven hours away from most of the people that I love and cherish in my life, um, other than my wonderful family who I'm currently living near. Um, but it's it, 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 it's been so strange to see how the narratives are developing between, you know, myself and then this group of people that I love and cherish who I just simply don't have very much contact with. And they're getting into completely different stories than I am um with my family here and it's it it's exactly the same like the the common ground is just slowly crumbling under under our feet um quick pause you are recording this uh right crispy yes it says recording i could pause it if i wanted to so i'm assuming that it's it's going straight to my hard drive okay perfect sorry yeah um so so egg i I'm actually a little surprised that you're an undergrad. Just just from <laughs> voice, from your voice, I would have guessed you were older. What? I mean, I think about who I was when I was an undergraduate, and it seems like this is probably a terrible and really disorienting time to be an undergrad. Just because, like, it was it was hard enough for me when the world seemed like it was a much more stable place. I, I didn't feel stable at the time, you know, like war on terror was was going full bore. But I mean, at least things meant something. It is, it is, it is very tough. Um, I'm lucky enough to have my entire worldview crumble um, in September of last year, in September of 2019, because I met some people with crazy ideas and 
you know, their crazy ideas sounded kind of good. So I started delving into them. And so when the pandemic hit, I was, you know, glad for the glad for everyone else to get shaken up so that I could, you know, hold what little common, what little stable ground I had, you know, over their heads and say, ha ha, you know, <laughs> at least I'm standing on something. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, it, it's been, it's been actually refreshing um, to some degree because it's given me a chance to, um, you know, take a really good look at what I actually want to do with my life um, and realize that what I wanted to do with my life had changed, but what I was doing with my life um, hadn't. So it's been, it's been a wonderful chance at recalibration uh, for myself. Now, Zoom school, absolutely terrible. Hate it. But yeah. uh, <laughs> it's also given me the opportunity to look at other ways of living. Um, I've started getting into like the kind of homestead culture that goes around in certain corners on Twitter. And uh, I'm taking steps to, you know, start building some of those skills. Um, this summer, I've arranged an internship at a, a, a farm in Northern Ontario. And uh, Oh, cool. Are, are you Canadian? Yeah. I am Canadian. Yes. Not to dox you. Okay. I wonder. Oh, no, I... you can dox me. Like I said, I'm a 21 year old undergraduate. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, that's the exact opposite. If you're a 21 year old undergraduate, you're like the most fucked if you get docked in this, like in this current scenario, don't you think? You think so? I'm not sure about that. I, I, I don't worry about it. I mean, I post, I post funny jokes about eggs on Twitter. If somebody doxes me, you know, it, it's, it, it's pathetic on their part. That's funny. I play fast and loose and, and, and definitely way too loose. I'm a, I'm a little bit probably uh, too loose with this stuff, but I'm definitely worried. But I guess I have this entire like I kind of view things in like terms of like a 10 or 15 year career plan of like this is what I want to add to this field. I want to branch off of this field and make something new and whatever. And that could totally get annihilated pretty quickly. And I kind of imagine it will because I'm being a little bit too uh, uncareful. But maybe that's I'm just a very paranoid person in general, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like academia is maybe the place where people are most vulnerable. Yeah. Like, I mean, Bowser, Bowser's maybe a case in point. Big F going out to Bowser. And I, I mean, like, you know, he deleted. I'm not sure he was foolish to delete. I, in fact, I, I would say he, he was. was definitely not foolish. And it, he, he didn't even post things that were that objectionable. But I think I think it's less what you say and how and more just the vibe that you give about how seriously you take certain sets of ideas. Exactly. And, you know, he just, he just disrespected some of the, like, kings some and queens, the kings and queens, he disrespected certain narratives that you're not supposed to disrespect. And even, even if he didn't actually like embrace their alternatives. And I, I think that's in some ways a worse crime. So I don't know, poor Bowser. So, okay. So things are weird. Tell me what about these other linguistic tools? I mean, I'm, I'm actually very interested specifically because, I mean, you, you know, you do NLP stuff. You're in some sense measuring language mm -hmm. and it seems like you're really paying attention to this. So, so far we have, you know, intersubjective coherence becoming intersubjective incoherence. And we have like an acceleration of guy types, um, none of which actually mean anything anymore. <laughs> And, mm -hmm. and it is true. I mean, like, nobody even talks about Karens anymore. That came no, and it went. I mean, like, I, I don't even know. Like, what, what is the point of these things? It. I wonder how much of it do you think is a function just of how Twitter operates? Like, it, it seems like it's optimized to have these sorts of um, 
like memes that saturate and then fall into a death spiral very quickly in some kind of a, you know, sigmoidal growth curve. I think that's true. But I also think that there's this effect of Twitter operates very differently in lockdown. And I forgot who was saying this. It was someone recently, um, it might have even been on this podcast, I don't remember, uh, who said that online has won. Yeah. Um, and it's true. I think online has won. IRL now refers to Twitter, in my opinion. Um, and so I think the issue is really that, like, if this is where we're going to socialize, we have to figure out ways to get all of the micro signals that we need and want in communication into the digital platform. And that requires way more diversity of the linguistic space than we previously had. Language is an incredible tool, but we're pushing in so much stuff that we used to use body language for, that we used to use presence and context for. And so I think we're basically creating context by creating a more diverse linguistic space implicitly. Yeah, and by more diverse, do you mean like... Um... There are more objects you can refer to. There are more nouns, fundamentally. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So just like enrichment and, and increasing the breadth of, but, but I mean, like, would you, so just apart from like adding new words, would you say, I mean, I think there are new ways of using words on Twitter. I, I mean, I, I definitely am communicating different things depending on which punctuation I'm using, sure. for example, mm -hmm. or like how formally I'm writing a tweet or where I'm sticking emojis. And I, I think that's actually been, I mean, people, it's, it feels like people are developing technologies for doing that on a really rapid basis yeah. and yeah I, hmm. I think one thing there that's really interesting so basically I subscribe to like the kind of Claude Shannon information theory view of of information and knowledge which is that like information is defined by the distinctions you can make so I always think about I think it was this 19th century novel but I might be wrong it might even be 18th century um where I don't I don't even remember which uh, novel it was it might have been um Pamela or something where basically uh, there's this reference to uh, the, a group of girls and the priest and it's called like he refers to them as petticoats because they all wear kind of a certain kind of garb that men don't wear yeah. and so like the fact that they could make that distinction in a single word right is really important and I think that's a lot of what's being created right now where even if it's not a word for these people there are all these distinctions of oh these people are like that people right there's the manosphere and there's whatever like there are all of these little distinctions that are kind of coming up that can be referred to even implicitly and I think a lot of the um comma stuff right is like <laughs> basically allowing you to show what kind of serious you are and by showing what kind of serious you are showing which group you're you're hedging towards without actually or like posturing towards without actually saying that group and i think that's something you can do in real life that like with kind of like contextual signals that is hard to do in text and we're basically developing ways of showing that we're kind of angling towards a certain group of people without having to say them out loud yeah so do you think people have control over this process, like conscious control, or it feels like this is something that's just happening and it's happening at scale and individuals can like pick up on it and individuals can make little contributions on the margins perhaps, but it feels like a larger process and, and sort of happening inhumanly and at a fantastic rate and everyone is just getting caught up in it. I agree. And I think basically... It's being, I think essentially what's happening is it's being created by people, 
but what sticks is an evolutionary selection process. So if you create it, it you kind of the specifics of it are because you created it that way. But there was going to be something like that that was eventually yeah. going to be created. And mm -hmm. so you don't have really control about what the niches that are open that are that are actually adaptive are, but you have control over the kind of specifics of what could fill that niche. Sure. Okay. Ah, this this is actually ups it's not upsetting to me, but it does make me feel kind of like I'm being tossed about in a storm. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> yeah. For the most part, I'm on board with it. Um, I'm on record several times saying that words don't mean words only mean what you want them to mean. <laughs> um, much like Humpty Dumpty in uh alice in wonderland or whichever one it was yeah but, um you know with with enough context um you know as given by all these different words and the different punctuation habits and you know putting apostrophes in and wherever i feel like they, they ought to go um people will understand what i mean and i don't actually need to tell them that they will simply understand what i mean when i type a single you know grinning emoji um, and if they don't, then perhaps they ought to ask. And if I trust them enough, then I'll tell them. I don't, I don't really mind it too much because there's a lot of, there's a lot of layers to it, um, where you can communicate different things to different groups, just as you would in real life. Um, and the groups who, you know, you don't want to talk to simply don't know what you're talking about. What, if, what do you, what do you guys think of the, the Mott and Baileying of, of almost every word? I, I have the sense that there are certain words that have a, a bit of political salience, especially, I mean, and anything with political salience really is, is going to go through the following process. Someone who's going to pick that word up and they're going to kill it and they're going to skin it and they're going to fill the skin with all kinds of, of connotations, just, just, you know, huge quantities of connotations. And then they're going to send that bundle of connotations wearing the skin of the original word out into the wild. And it, it's going to be like this living independent, like Mott and Bailey, just, 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 just skin walking through the discourse on a regular basis. Do you, do you think that's accelerated? I think people have done this in the past, but it feels like it's happening a lot more now. I strongly agree with this. And so I want to compare it to, this is what people try to do with governments when they take over a government, right? Like if you like occupy a territory, what you try to do is you leave the government there and then you fill it up with your people. And then you try to say, it's the same name. It's still that institution. Sure, we changed it a little bit, but it's the real thing. Except then, right, like everybody knows, well, these people are really working on it. And, and there's, it's a little bit harder to make that claim. But what's crazy about terms is that they are exactly the same. Everything that's not literally the letters is in your head. And so you can do this. And the only evidence about the fact that it's changed is people's reaction to it. And so then they can make the claim, oh, we're just reacting to it because now we know what you really mean, where you're making the claim, wow, actually it's very different. And there's no really way to show that it's, it's changed, right? Because the reaction is literally the change and they can just say, oh, we discovered what you really are. So I totally agree with that. And I think one of the main reasons is because most of the fights now are linguistic, 
rather than like, you know, being about getting something done in the real world or, or getting people together in a physical place because none of that's happening. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So like, I'm pretty struck by that. All of the fights now are linguistic. Oh, fuck. So how do you, how do you win a linguistic fight? I'm not sure that it's possible. Is it? I mean, it depends on what we mean by win, but I think what you need to do, right? Like the purpose of every human enterprise is to create a coalition in my view. Uh -huh. I mean, there are certain things like that we want to do physically, like extend lifespan and whatever, but most human enterprises are really about creating coalitions. So if people start using a word your way, that's how you know you're winning. Yeah. Mm. So which, which coalitions are winning right now in terms of linguistics? I would call it hypersensitivity. I think, you know, it's, it's easy to call out, be like, oh, you know, the liberals, whatever. And I actually, like, I have plenty of problems with, like, modern liberal discourse, but I, I don't like calling it out that way. It seems a bit bullshit. But I yeah. think there is this hypersensitivity of if I can extract something bad from a word or from a person, then that becomes representative. Like, you're, we're reasoning by not just lowest common denominator, but, like, lowest, lowest dignity. Anything, any, the lowest dignity thing that can be associated with something is the way you should reason about it. Oh, yeah. Actually, that dignity is an interesting way to put that. But yeah, I, I guess I was ranting about that the other night with uh, somebody was mad that people were using marijuana because marijuana was the term <laughs> for cannabis that I, I she didn't even get into this level of detail. But I think she was gesturing at the fact that FDR, when he was demonizing marijuana in the 30s, settled, settled on marijuana because it sounded vaguely Mexican and he could associate it with, you know, those terrible people from south of the border who I, some, some of whom I assume were good people. But but and and I thought that was really dumb. And I, I started framing that in the context of the word slave, which has all of its own terrible connotations. But also, you know, it's from from the Slavs who were like basically the Kleenex of slaves in the, the ninth century. And I ultimately thought this was very stupid, but it also seems almost irresistible. And if somebody can make a credible claim that there's some lack of dignity about a word, then, then, then they manage to get it to stick. So do, do you think, I mean, it seems like there's a coalition around this and this says that there's a group of people who really do this a lot, but I wonder how much of this is just like a, like a technologically, determined outcome in the sense that we have all of these novel linguistics technologies and that just happens to be a discovery that you can go and take some connotation and, and like stitch it up inside of a word. And that's just what the word's going to mean now. And like everyone is just a little bit polite and nobody actually wants to be that offensive except for the people who do, but unless, you know, unless you really want to be offensive, you don't want to be offensive. And, and so you're, you're just, it's like a linguistic technology that is able to hijack a, a normal human inclination. Does that sound right? There's a lot there. I, I agree with that. And I think though that there's one thing that people forget a lot, which is I do think a lot of these things, like the, the playground you're playing in is set up by culture and it's not all cultures are equally susceptible to these various things. There are things that I think basically almost all cultures are super susceptible to, but I don't think this is one of them. I think most things are one of them. And I think one of the reasons, so I have this kind of pet theory. One of the reasons we see the kind of, especially moral and ethical arguments that we see today in America 
is because of all of these movies in America in the last like 30, 40 years where someone is willing to shout out the truth in front of everybody and get a reaction. And like any good correlation, it's gotten reversed. And people assume if you can shout out something and get a reaction and get people on your side, it's the truth. Oh, sure. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How often do you think that's true? If you can shout something out and get a reaction, it's true. I mean, I think there's, there's sometimes, there's sometimes some amount of truth to that, Sure. you know, like if there's a large coalition of people who want to say that you can't say something like a lot of the time they're right. Will Wilkinson referred to certain people as right-wing shit stirrers <laughs> the other day. And, you know, while I object to the idea that shit stirring has a party, I see shit stirrers as playing a very valuable role in just maintaining the space in which people can speak and drawing attention to the fact that other people are trying to prevent people from saying certain things, which I, which I usually object to. I mean, you know, I'm not going to go into somebody's house and, and just call them a bitch to their face <laughs> under normal circumstances. Right. But I don't think most kinds of speech fall into that, that sort of rubric of offensiveness. And, and if, you know, you're, if in some sense you're participating in public discourse, you want, if, if you're not aggressively defending the space in which you can like the space of things, which you can say, Lots of people are interested in in sort of restricting that space because, you know, if, if you can't make great counter arguments to whatever you're saying, then it's very hard to win an argument. Like, like the easiest way to win an argument is to simply outlaw people from making good points against whatever you're arguing. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, the thing is, you can still say the things that they're outlawing you to say. You can take their favorite terms and, you know, skin them and stuff all your favorite connotations in their favorite term and zip it back up and send it out into the world. Like if people are going to, if people are going to try to censor me, you know, I can find a new space where I'm not going to be censored, which is usually what I end up doing, or I can fight their censorship by finding new ways to talk about the goddamn things that I want to talk about. Um, And in that way, like I, you can use, the same kind of technologies which you know they might be using in the same kind of way you know putting objectionable content into your words then you might want to put objectionable objectionable content into theirs yeah i hate doing that though i fucking hate doing that it feels so dishonest i actually I, I do think you have to do that to some extent. And I think I think there are ways that I don't mind doing it, which has to do with kind of calling out a part of, of that general context like, that I dislike, that I think a lot of people would dislike if they saw it in this thing. But I think there's an underlying issue that scares me more. And I, I think I'm especially sensitive to this because of my position and, and my career plans. But that, like, I think there's this issue where a lot of groups and institutions are really slow changing. And so I think you can do what Egg Prophet is saying if you have this backing of a kind of more amorphous community like we do on Twitter. But I think 
when it comes to certain institutions, you're just not going to change certain things. Whereas certain people who do have other intentions are going to change certain factors about the discourse and you're kind of at their mercy. And I think that makes things really complicated because like you can fill up their ideas, you know, you can use their words in, in ways that kind of call out painful things, but then other people are going to basically say, Hey, why are you calling this out? And they're going to kind of reify you doing that in a way that you couldn't do to them. Cause there's not enough people you could show that they're doing this to, or who would agree with you. Do you have an example of that? I'm just trying to make this a bit more concrete. Yeah, no, totally. I, I tend to talk super abstractly. Um, so it's a good defense. <laughs> um, so, uh, what, uh, like remember when there was that um i forgot what he what what his job was but that dude who was fired for supposedly making like a white supremacist um uh, like hand signal in his car and it was just like some like i forgot i think it was a construction worker or something and then he was like i don't even know what that hand signal means i was just kind of playing around with my hands while i waited for someone in the car um, yeah and that that seems like something that happened yeah exactly <laughs> Um, I, and I again linked to the article because this is like actually a bunch of places wrote about this. And the thing about it is, there's no way he could do anything to change that narrative because he didn't have powerful enough narrative backing from any specific group to make that happen, right? Whereas yeah. people could put that on him. And so I think like he could have said something and a lot of us would have even agreed to it and we would have found an article about it. But in the places that matter, the institutions that mattered that fired him, it wouldn't have mattered at all. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's interesting. So, I mean, we're talking about coalitions. How much of what happened with Scott and not, not to like obsess over this, but it's sure. still fresh in my mind and it feels like a very direct application of people in some way using language and affiliation and association to engage in coalitional politics. Like, I would say the rationalists are a pretty large group, sure. um, but, but not like a society large group. You know, it's, it's, it's not like we're the readership of say the New York times. If, and I mean, post-rationalism, whatever that is, <laughs> is, is even less large than that. Sure. Although I, I think we inhabit some kind of a nexus of a pretty, I don't know, like high linguistic power space I agree. And, and maybe there are some things downstream of us. So we have some kind of narrative control. Like, I, I don't know how, is there some way to frame what happened with Scott in this, this kind of a, this kind of a paradigm that you're suggesting? Yeah. There are a few things I, I'd like to say about that. And I think one of the big things is I'm sure we all noticed that most people rushed to Scott's defense, probably a little bit too hard, in my opinion, in a way that became a little bit ugly. But then that created a reaction where some people were like, why are you guys being so coalitional and tribal? And I think what I want to say there is there is a very strong in the in the old common sense of general American lifestyle, there's a very strong what I would call anti-paranoid sentiment. There's this belief that if you start believing that someone is specifically out to get you, you're the crazy one. Mm. And so I actually personally do feel like but the New York Times did come after Scott. And I, I, I think there's kind of plenty of evidence for that. It was a long time. Journalists don't write that many pieces in a year. They don't write 300 pieces a year, right? Like they're like, I don't know. I think Cade probably wrote like, I don't know, like 50, 
maybe 80 pieces in the last year. I don't think it's even 80. I looked at some point. Um, and so I think, look, this took a while and it was, they obviously kind of delayed it for a while. There was some thought process and there's this, there's this clearly this intended like total backswimming, at least from what they claimed they were doing, which I think has to be taken. But I think what's weird is, right, even as the New York Times was kind of setting up this weird coalitional factor, we were basically by waiting, they created a brew in which we, co we, we created a coalition and that looked ugly, right? And even people in the community felt like this is too ugly. This is exactly what we don't want to be. And so I think there's this weird thing where coalitions tend to function best when people aren't directly aware, when they think it's common sense. And the fact mm. that the rationalists were pitted as kind of an island created a lot of in-group fighting. Yeah, I know. Do, do you do you count yourself a rationalist? I mean, I know there are certain circles that are maybe more explicitly rationalist than others. I don't really count, count, count myself as a rationalist. I definitely hang out with the post rats a lot. And, you know, like Tritcher AI did that, like, um, did that uh, map of the rationalists. And I think I was in, in downtown post rats or something. So like that, I guess that's like what my Twitter likes or whatever show, but I, I don't know. I kind of just consider myself, I don't know, obsessed with language and like interested in just figuring these things out. And I think post rats in general, I like what I like about the rationalists is that they want to explain things and they want to explain things clearly. I have a lot of criticisms about their methodology. And I think post rats are really open to criticism and realize that words are really the key confounding factor. And I think that like any theory, even if you want to talk about physics, words become the bottleneck eventually. Um, yeah. And that's that's what's kind of interesting. Um, but like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of trying actually to to make a new thing. So I'll, I'll just quickly shill this new website, um, me and at Suspended Reason created called Failstorch, um, which is about basically trying to be kind of something like uh, less wrong for, the, for more humanistic thinking. Our, our motto is uh, the more you want to expand science, the more non-scientific grounding you need. So that's kind of my, my position. Oh, cool. Okay. We should maybe talk about that a bit later. Um, yeah. So egg, I'm curious how all of this looks to you. Like, of... oh, I don't know. Just, just all of this. Do I look um, sexy to you? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I don't know. How, how long have, how long have you been like extremely online? Would you say? Um, I've been extremely online since July. Okay. Before that, before that I was, you know, hardly online. Um, I browsed Reddit for a couple of years and never participated. Um, and before that, I was just mostly, you know, real world. I didn't really spend much time on the internet as a kid. I was like a sports books, you know, talking to people after school kind of person. Um, not very online at all. So, and then the pandemic hit and I figured, you know, might as well make some friends on there um, and uh, started learning what the culture was like by jumping in with two, uh, two feet. So do we seem completely unhinged to you? <laughs> <laughs> Large parts of Twitter seem completely unhinged to me, but um, I'm, I'm rather unhinged myself, so I don't mind it too much. <laughs> that's so so diplomatic and canadian yeah i'm just i'm just curious i mean i've been on i've been fairly online and probably mostly extremely online since i was like since maybe 92 93 
and 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 you know just sort of immersed in this kind of a culture and it's when when i talk to people whose whose background is fairly different than that i'm just kind of curious what what it looks like to have come to this at a later point and like seeing the outgrowths of all of these trends that i mean honestly it seems like they've been happening for for decades at this point and they've maybe been a bit invisible to to outsiders there's something that i see a lot where people reinforce their own fantasies by talking to people who share the same fantasies mm. like plus one the fantasy that you know anybody would care about this article in the new york times it's like obviously people are going to read the new york times and they're going to see this but the fact that people will like they're not going to give it a second thought if my mother looked at this article in the new york times she would be like hmm okay scroll to the next one um you know, in certain places, uh, certain communities, you know, I don't know what Silicon Valley is like, but I assume it would have had a slightly larger impact there. But for the most part, I think that the people who are in Silicon Valley will already have a position on it. I mean, maybe they know who Scott Alexander is. Maybe they already hate Flight Star Codex. Maybe they, um, I don't know. I don't know what Silicon Valley is, but I, there's 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 a there's a large degree to which you know people will reinforce their own fantasies with a bunch of other people who believe the same thing, um, and you know I do that myself um, for the things that I believe in. It's it's a pretty natural coalition behavior, but at some point people just start to lose touch with people who aren't in their coalition, um, and I see that in a lot of places on Twitter, including the community that I'm part of, um, like the post rats here. And so I just, I just don't think that, uh, a lot of the things that we worry about are, are huge deals. Do you remember, did, I don't know. I'm not sure whether you saw it. There was a story about the orangutan, which came out of, it came out of Tumblr, I think, or something like that. And, and it was about the, the story of this guy who was, a. I don't know. I, I I think maybe an English lit guy, and he showed up at an Edgar Allan Poe scholar conference, and they were having a they were having an argument about whether you know Poe was racist, which I guess is one of the oldest arguments that can take place in any in any humanities field. And there's there's one story, the murders in the Rue Morgue, about the that that contains an orangutan. And he stands up in the middle of this conversation and just tries to like get his grounding and like demonstrate that he sort of knows something about Poe. And he stands up and while they're arguing about some, some other thing about Poe's racism or lack thereof, he says, well, what about the orangutan? And the entire room just goes silent. And like, you know, like you could, you could hear a pin drop. And after a few seconds, the moderator says, we do not talk about the orangutan. And, and 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 the background is that apparently this this is something that you mention and people start to try to kill each other and 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 and, and there's just this long history of people having just you know drop down kill each other fights over over the issue of whether the orangutan is is like racist or anti-racist or what he's trying to say with this thing and they they just like block it off and th this guy who is not a post scholar had no idea that these fights were taking place that had no idea that there was this bloody history behind even just mentioning the conflict and 
I think there may be an element of that with the Slate Star Codex piece. Like Scott has been through a lot over the years. And, and just for your context, there's an entire ecosystem of people who hate Scott full time. And you can go and see them. They, they legitimately are nuts. Like Alex Chu does a lot. There's you know an entire subreddit called Sneer Club. There's another site called Rational Wiki, which is more or less the same thing of extremely, extremely online people whose full-time job is, I, I mean, going between trying to clown on, on rationalists and actively trying to destroy their lives. And so I, I think, but none of that is visible at all to people who haven't been extremely online for say 10 years. And that, that, that issue about perspective is pretty interesting. I think you're right that it wouldn't have mattered say like 10 years ago and everybody would be extremely bent out of shape. But I think perhaps the fact that every, anybody can be fired at any point in time really adds a certain, mm, I don't know, a certain urgency to it. What, what do you think? <clears throat> I think that that's uh... it seems like that probably would have precisely happened. Like Scott likely would have gotten fired um, or I, well, I have no idea. I'm not going to speculate about things that didn't happen. Um, it seems like it would be a legitimate worry though. I, <laughs> I'm not criticizing you. I mean, there, there's an no, extent to I, it, which I, is totally no, I, crazy. I understand the point. It, it's, I just have no idea. Like I'm not part of the community. It's hard to say. It's hard to I don't know the dynamics of these things. Like I, I walk in and somebody says rationalist and I'm like, oh, yud, that's about all I know. Yeah. I'd like to inject one thing here, which is just that I do think, so I, I kind of agree with a prophet that I don't think there's going to be a lot of actual backlash to this piece. What scares me is the idea of on record. And I think there, what scares me is I think now, like, I can't send my, you know, kind of more normie peers a link to anything from SSC because I would be scared it would be used against me if something turned. And I think that's that's actually something real. I think academia is a little bit more scary that way than most other places, which is sad, especially because, you know, it's supposed to be whatever, looking for truth. But, you know, we all know the realities about how academia can be incredibly political. And I think that that more than anything is what scares me. I, I never really worried about the primary fighters because they often just have so much heft that it, they're going to be kind of fine most of the time. Um, yeah. But I think the reality is, I feel like, you know, having, uh, you know, being in my um, late 20s, I saw the rise and fall of like classical liberalism on the internet where it, it was allowed to say, you were allowed to say a lot of things, you know, 2008 blogs. And yeah. now it's very scary and I feel scared by it. Like, and I, and I, I am definitely on the more paranoid side and I want to acknowledge that bias, but I think having something like that on record as like being evil and like Cade never uses the word evil, but it, it's pretty clearly like shown, you know, eugenics and blah, 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 and all of this stuff um, that like he thinks that Scott's evil. I think that's what scares me. Yeah. So, so there, yeah, there, there's that entire, like, I mean, just, just trying to slime an entire thing that wasn't exactly a coalition. I mean, it, it, the, the strange thing is that 
I don't think the rationalists were that interested in in engaging with, say, the the East Coast establishment that New York Times more or less represents before this piece almost came out. And I'm not quite sure why they settled on Scott as, as some kind of a focal point. You don't think Scott is a natural focal point? Because I feel like what Scott is, is Scott is the golden boy of rationalism. Yeah. And he's not the leader by any means. But I mean, any, I would be surprised if anyone thinks that Yud is a better writer than Scott, right? Scott is the person who not I just made so. this, yeah, <laughs> uh, who just made this not just palatable, understandable, empathizable, right? Like, like literally, like Moldbug calls him the king, right? Like there is this universal respect for what Scott is, and for more than anything, his authenticity. I don't know anyone who reads Scott who doesn't think he's being authentic, even if they think he's dumb for it. And yeah. I think that created this kind of sheen that was an obvious kind of shell to break if you like were looking at the rationalism community. Yeah, but like why why the rationalists in particular? Like they weren't it doesn't I mean like is is it just as as a narrative alternative to to something else? Like is it, do you think there's like an impulse if a narrative exists to need to destroy other narratives? I could see that. Yeah, so I think the way most takeovers of any culture work and I don't even mean takeover is a bad thing all cultural change is basically a takeover is decide on a narrative pretend that narrative is reality and for every aberration from that narrative fix it like it's a problem and yeah. I think that's just what we're seeing so yeah okay so like every aberration from the narrative you mean just like every competing narrative Every competing narrative or every physical reality that's different, right? Yeah. Like, okay. If you so see either. people that are poor and like, you know, your thing is that this country is rich or that, you know, socialism works or whatever you want it to be, then you have to somehow make it so that the narrative sticks anyway. Um, and so you have to make a competing narrative or you have to change some kind of reality or you have to make people scared to say how they're really feeling or something. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, that sounds about right. I wonder. Hmm. So what do you what do you think about the the meta narrative that it used to be very easy to enforce a narrative because there were like three radio stations or mm -hmm. three TV stations, and now anybody can go and say anything anywhere. I, I guess that's sort of done to death. Maybe it's not though. Maybe that maybe people should still be talking about that on a regular basis because it seems like the maybe the largest change that's occurred in terms of narrative generation and maintenance in the United States since, I mean you know since FDR right? Yeah. I, I agree. I don't think it's over talked about because I think there's something that needs to be talked about that we don't from that, which is our understanding of the past is so limited that I don't think people will ever accept how limited it really is. We talk about this election and this happened and these people thought this and whatever. And I really don't think we see how much those are documents. Those are shit posts from just a few people. That's what they really are. And we're never, ever going to see all the other shit posts that would have been created if there was internet scale logging of what people were thinking and writing. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that people are like, how did the world get so weird? I'm like, the world was always weird, but people kind of thought that they were kind of feeling the weirdness alone. And they were going along with the narrative that like was kind of not universally, but much more universally being acknowledged. So do you think there ends up being some kind of a 
like over the long term, if everybody can express their narrative and everybody can express their, their sort of own subjective perspective, do you think, do, does this end up being the case where there's just kind of some lowest common denominator narrative that people end up settling on as, as something like at least some kind of a shared reality, even if it's not as, as broad or eternalist as, as some of the old ones. I think there always is that it just is not enough to like properly coordinate around. So like there are things that everybody agrees on more or less. Like there are people who deny that COVID exists, but I don't think anyone really takes them seriously anymore. Right. And there were people who took them seriously earlier in the pandemic, which is like insane to me. Like why would these governments be reporting, you know, deaths, but whatever. Um, but I think there always is, but the question is, is it enough to coordinate the kind of stuff you want? And I think the reality is that the American bureaucracy is super complicated, both by necessity and more complicated than it needs to be even for necessity. And that coordinating like just what America is right now is not possible with the level of overlap that we're getting. So it's kind of like, you know, you could call like an overtone window before coordination where like there is some basis, there always is some basis because we're human and we perceive certain things. But I think, okay, like let's get specific. I think it's very difficult right now to just come up with a COVID policy that like won't, like we said, like be taken to the lowest dignity and become infeasible for you to sell. Yeah. Well, okay. And one other thing. So you talk about like the, you know, the need for a narrative to coordinate. What the hell are people even trying to coordinate at this point? I don't know that I see that, you know, like, so suppose that I, and I've thought about this a lot, like suppose that some of the, some of the more irritating uh, hypersensitive narratives win like in it, like in, in some final or complete sense, what do they even do? What are they coordinating for? Well, I think one of the reasons why we tend to say, Oh, that it doesn't appear that they're doing anything is because a lot of that narrative is one of destruction. It's saying we don't want what is currently here. And there's no, from most of that space, there's a, not a lot of productive mechanism yet because it's mostly focused on what's what's like what needs to go away, right? Like to me, this is like the defund X kind of platform, which is like our narrative is the destruction of something. And so it doesn't need to provide like a productive thing yet. And I think for me, like I think it'll very much, my guess is it'll very much change once anything, anything big goes, then they're kind of rush in in the vacuum a bunch of new narratives but they're not the narrative that destroyed it they're completely new narratives that rushed in from the vacuum and kind of got realigned but i yeah. still think that there are some things that are being coordinated and i think they're so simple we don't even think about them as things but one big thing is friend groups i think the nature of friend groups really changed and there are a lot of people and, and families by the way there are a lot of people right that we've all seen on twitter saying don't talk to your family anymore if they don't have the right politics and so i think the very nature of basic relationships and who we're, going, who we're going to talk to on a weekly basis is probably the most important thing being coordinated right now and is experiencing a lot of turmoil. Yeah, interesting. And so, so David Chapman talks about, um, David Chapman talks a lot about the, these different stages of culture and subculture. And, you know, he identifies like, you know, the, 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 the sort of dueling eternalist mode from say the the mid 20th century to mm -hmm. the subcultural mode in in say the 70s when people are like well okay we're not going to be able to coordinate around some single narrative so let's just try and create he talks about meaning or modes of meaning but 
maybe you can think about it as a narrative that people are buying into. So like maybe in the seventies or eighties, people would buy into a subcultural narrative. And eventually these subcultures started a fraction by his telling when the internet became larger and people could say, pick and choose multiple subcultures to be involved with. And he identified this as an atomistic mode where everybody was just kind of going and doing their own thing and picking and choosing different, different modes of being. And it does seem like at this point that atomized mode is, is starting to fall apart and maybe people are coalescing into, I don't know, subcultural coalitions again, or even maybe grand narratives. If, if you start looking at the politics of, the United States. And I mean, you know, like the, the two largest narrative coalitions seem like they're sort of around Trump or sort of around, you know, whatever exists on the far left. They're, I mean, like there's a center, but there's no narrative there. Sure. I, so, I strongly agree with that. And I think that you can kind of see three things. There's really no Republican Party anymore. I don't think. I think it's in complete chaos and, and we need to see what rises up from the vacuum. And there's two Democratic parties, right? There's the old people who are still saying, we got rid of Trump. That's the major goal. And now we just have to get back to normality. And then the people who are saying normality isn't half enough, right? And we need to go so much further. And there are a bunch of disagreements about where that goes. But I think those are the three major, like actually grand narratives that exist. And we're currently seeing them kind of duke out. And like even the Republican one that doesn't exist, that's a major narrative, the narrative of the chaos of the thing and needing to create something to replace it from, you know, people who are were Republicans or are Republicans and feel like there's nothing there right now and they need to put something there. I'm thinking a little bit about the 100 schools period. Mm. In China, and I'm only totally. thinking about that because I've been listening to the History of China podcast, which nice. is great. Check it out. Um, it doesn't especially treat the hundred schools with with a lot of attention, which is too bad because I think that's very interesting. But I'm thinking about that, or I'm thinking almost about some of the I don't know. The, there was that period after the fall of Mycenae in Greece when there was just kind of a civilizational incoherence that that occurred for a while, and. I wonder if we're hitting some kind of, I mean, it definitely seems like we're hitting some kind of a period like that. So, okay. So there are these two, I think you identified both the like Trumpish esque narrative and, and the, I don't know, social justice narrative, if, if I can call it that, sure. I mean, just, just for ease rather than trying to throw any connotations at it, although <laughs> I guess, you know, impossible. So you identify both of those as being sort of destructive. Do you, do you, do you think there are just, a hundred thousand smaller like community narratives that are being built around that? Or do you think that the narrative about like, you know, abandon your family if they have the wrong politics is itself just a subset of some of these larger destructive narrative groups? No, I think, I think the former, and I think that's because basically there is these grand narratives are just lowest common denominators in my view. And in reality, you know, social justice people aren't just social justice people. They fight over lots of things. There are lots of fragmentation there. And I think the fact is, though, it kind of cancels itself out. So if you're not really in one of those, you know, like specific subgroups, you don't see that as much because it's canceled out by lots of other people. I think, though, there is this... I don't think these little things will always be destructive. I think basically new new grand narratives are always kind of destructive in order to make themselves space. And we don't know what productive what productive narrative is going to win out in this space. But the, but the destructive side of it is kind of the lowest common denominator. I also think that we just there there's a complete kind of impotence of people to do something because it doesn't seem like anyone has enough institutional power to change what's going on. 
and I think that's leading to kind of mostly institutional collapse. But but as we see more collapse, people will do things and like they will want to have, you know, restaurants, even though all the restaurants closed down and things like that. And the kind of regulation under which that happens and in which new internet groups happen and who's talking to who on signal since we no longer see that and we have the internet of tunnels kind of phenomenon now. Internet think, of tunnels. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Um I think that's going to, I think we don't know because we don't have public visibility, but there are people who are trying to say, okay, this is how we're going to make the world. And we just can't see them because the internet is too opaque now because people got scared to post their opinions. Yeah. Well, we're all Morlocks now. <laughs> uh, man, I don't know. Egg, I feel like maybe I've been talking a lot. What, what do you make of all of this? Mm, I'm of two minds about it. Um, because other, on, on the one hand, um, I wonder whether, of course, being on Twitter, we only see very specific subsets of this. I mean, there's the entirety of the establishment Democratic Party who doesn't really care much about the, the, the far left groups of it, or if you want to call it that, I mean, you know what I mean, who cares yeah. about the words. Um, and then on the other <laughs> who cares hand, about the words indeed? On the other hand, um, it's very obvious to me that, you know, people are coalescing around politics as, you know, the dominant form of social organization right now. You know, in schools, people will begin, you know, um, it's like bands back in the, I'm not sure when bands, I I didn't live through these times, but I know the I know the the portrayal in popular media of when you know your taste in music was what decided your social group, and now that's politics or um, yeah, you know a lack of politics and people who just want to talk about sports instead. But it, it seems like that's the dominant organization for the youth, and I don't think that that's something that we can really neglect very much. Um, Is that so? I I I wonder about how the balance of power will swing between, you know, the establishment who isn't on the internet and who doesn't see these things. And then the extremely online zoomers who, you know, only care about politics and will perhaps stop talking to their families as they get older, if they don't share their politics. Do you, that's really interesting. Do you, is this, is this really a, correct characterization of the youth i mean i'm i'm fucking old i'm i'm reproducing i i have a job i'm in my mid-30s i don't know what the youths are like this man is evolutionarily adaptive folks (laughs) (laughs) i don't know like i i only see the groups of my friends who are um extremely extremely anti-trump Um, I had to talk down one of my friends recently because, well, not recently, this was months and months ago in the summer, because she said she wished that Trump would just simply die. And I was like, please do not, do not wish death on anyone in my group chat. This is not, this is not not what I want to hear in my group chat. Um, And it's very, very, very woke, very left-wing in my personal friend groups um but it 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 does seem like politics are the major mode of social organization in the high schools um some people you know don't care about it too much they 
play into the normal, you know, popularity dynamics. Some people are just caught up too much in getting good marks to, to worry about who they're friends with. But it, it does seem to become, be becoming more popular. Um, and also from my very limited, you know, kind of binocular view of TikTok, um, it seems like people just talk about politics on there and on Instagram all the time. Um, you know, the youth don't use Facebook. They use Snapchat and Instagram and, and TikTok. They, um, you know, I'm a lurker on Instagram so that I can see what my friends are up to. And they just post political, you know, this is the truth behind all these phrases. Like, don't say sold down the river because that's rooted in slavery. And I mean, we live in Canada. <laughs> yeah, that, that feels a bit also like American politics are reading the world. Yeah. Has, has it always been true? Like it for, has that always been true in Canada? It seems like maybe there used to be more of a, more of a division. I don't know. I might not, be making that up. I've never been Canadian. I'm not sure. I've I've never I've never been interested in politics before, you know, this past year when I see it everywhere I go on the internet. Um it's it seems like the people here well for one thing I will say um people look at you like you're crazy if you talk about politics outside an election year. Um, and by election year, I mean the six weeks leading up to an election. People just think you're crazy. <laughs> unless so you're a healthy. young person. Yeah, unless you're a young person, in which case you have to talk about your politics to, to have friends um, online, at least. But it, it is a lot more healthy. Um, but at the same time, we mostly talk about American politics. There's a lot of importation of politics from the states because, you know, there's so much economic interdependence and we consume the same kind of media. And also there's just so much English American media. At least there's a language barrier for other countries. But yeah. Canada, we, we share that massive border and Canadians work in the states and we're just always under the cultural, the cultural um, umbrella. Yeah, I'm really sorry about that. It feels like our culture is perhaps one of our worst exports, and specifically our political culture. Like, right. man. <laughs> so one response to that, though, which I, I, I think I'm relatively singular in believing this, but I, I do want to, I think it's time to stop believing that politics is dirty. And I, I don't like the way politics is done in America, but I think it's people's hesitancy to do politics in general that has basically left it to the most egomaniacal and like just sociopathic people. Whereas I think like there is an art to getting coalitions to happen and being a little bit inauthentic in order to get your friends together. And I think some people kind of naturally have this, but I think it's become almost taboo to develop it because it seems inauthentic and wrong and weird rather than just kind of saying what you really want to say. And I was always a person who said what they really wanted to say. Like, I literally wrote this essay. That's my, probably my favorite essay that I've written called My Struggle with Literalism. Like I consider myself a very much like I just from my youth, I wanted to just say things and say what exactly what I meant to explain them. And I've learned not to do that. And honestly, to have much better friend groups because I'm arranging, I think, bringing people together in a way that isn't just word vomit. And I don't think like I don't not criticizing either of you guys of word vomiting because I think you guys do put thought into your words. But I think there is this culture that thinking a little bit too carefully about like social groups is actually wrong. And I don't think it is. I think we need to bring back politics in order to make politics 
healthy again. So I kind of have this motto, like every enterprise I, I'm a part of is a political enterprise, but I'm a true patriot. And I, I believe that like you, you should you should go for causes, but believe in your causes. I don't actually disagree with that. I think that my main objection to politics proper is that it's bad so often. I agree. But but I mean, and it's actually very dismaying to me seeing, I mean, in the United States, who actually goes into politics? Yeah. We're not sending our best. <laughs> you know, I I I mean that and I think part of that is because politics is just a really shitty career for most people. It's not well compensated. You end up being pretty broadly hated, more or less. I, I don't think that's always true, but I think that's often true. And if you're a really capable person and you're good at organizing and motivating people, you could go into politics. You might be able to win. You're going to deal with some really tiresome people a lot, all of the time, or you can go be a CEO. And I mean, just, just from a personal perspective, unless you have a very, very strong sense of say, I don't know, a certain kind of patriotism, like why, why would you do that to yourself? You know, why, why would you make yourself suffer like that? I totally agree. And I don't, I'm not encouraging anyone here to go into politics proper, but rather in the friend groups they're already in, in the enterprise they already want to run, in like the new villages people want to create post-COVID to be okay with politics there and to actually take politics seriously and read about people who are good at, you know, diplom diplomacy and these kinds of things. Because I think we need to take the dirtiness out of power or the people who get power will always be dirty. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, to a certain extent, I think... I feel like I'm trying to do that on a small scale. I agree. You know, I'm talking to a lot of people and I, I would really like there to be a certain amount of, I don't know, group coherence. I'm not sure what I think about that, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely, am I trying to build a coalition? That doesn't seem right. I don't necessarily have a set of actions that I would like to achieve here. I mean, yeah, I was talking, I was talking with Yashkov the other day and, you know, I think there really is, for example, a rationalist mission. They have a set of things that they really care about, and they're trying to accomplish those things. I And I'm not objecting to those things or their mission. I mean, I think some of it is maybe more likely to succeed than other things and more useful than other things. But like the fact that they're doing that, I have no objection to that. I'm on, I was talking with chaos last night, and I think maybe what's more true is just that very baseline trying to let people have a set of other people that they know that they can rely on to a certain extent to, you know, get support from, take care of each other. And is that politics? Maybe it is. I think it is. I have to say, I have a, I have a very small provider and I need to use the restroom so we could oh, either end it. here. But what I suggest, if we don't end here, you guys should just shit on me mercilessly until I'm back. So I'm gone and go ahead. Okay, cool. Egg. What are your top three things that you hate about chicken? Um, man, I really hate his new profile picture color scheme. It's gray and sad, and I need. Oh I yeah, need right. Yeah, I think you you have a particularly good sense of avatars, and I, I actually sort of agree with you. I think he would do better if if he went back to color. Yeah. So. Well, thank you for complimenting my choice of avatars. I, uh, the first one, I looked up Adventure Time Egg and that came <laughs> up and I just stuck it on there because it fit my vibe so well. Yeah. Um, and then since then, I've just, people have made me new avatars and, you know, I try them out and some work and some don't. Um, 
Thing number two, oh, I don't think there are very many things I hate about Crispy. Oh. Yeah, and it's making it really hard for you, and I resent him for that. <laughs> Fucking rude. <laughs> I will. I I will say we have a we have an ongoing gag on Twitter. Um, whenever somebody asks which of us came first, we come up with a different answer. Yeah. Um. So it's it's been going since probably August at this point. And honestly, people don't ask us very often. Um, and that disappoints me. So I hate that we don't get to, we don't get to pull off our gig more often. Um, that seems like you're not hitting crispy. It feels like you no, hate no, I'm hitting everybody Twitter. else. Yeah. More yeah. hate, more hate. I didn't hear anything. I just heard, I just heard I get <laughs> saying that that's not enough hate. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think we did well. I think we, uh, I think we accomplished your ask. So hell yeah. You can listen later and figure out what we hate about you. Um, Cool. Yeah. I don't know. So I, I guess that feels like a kind of politics, but then I think there's, I can't remember who is perhaps criticizing the rationalists, maybe both of you for <laughs> overreacting to the New York times piece originally. That felt like it was in some sense politics as well. I agree. So, so is your objection that it was ineffective politics? Yeah, it's bad politics. And I think it actually created more schism and didn't really get anything done. That said, mm -hmm. you know, I think there isn't space to disagree with Scott in the right ways. And I, I think that's bad. I actually disagree with most of the criticisms that have been leveraged at Scott within our general Twitter circles. Um, and I think, but I think that there needs to be space to discuss them with less tension. And I think the tension is pretty high right now in a way that I'm a little bit disappointed in everybody. Yeah. What, what kind of tension in particular? So, I, I mean, like, like air your grievances, man. Sure, sure. I think it was like Alibot who was saying, oh, like, you know, Scott, like, kind of supports soft eugenics and I'm not into that and whatever. I don't really read that. I don't really read it that way. Um, but I think people were being kind of intense. And I think um, Alibot felt like they had to, um, they had to kind of, I think they were logged off for a little bit um, because, like, pe like, they didn't have a, platform to talk about that and just be open with that and i can totally feel that i think i probably wouldn't post something like that if i felt it because i felt like it would get nothing done and i think that's sad because i think um i think that uh scott does have some issues like i think so i really actually liked um moldbug's piece about scott and he called scott you know like the bunny slopes of rationalist thinking that like you can Scott will never ask you to think something really, really crazy, right? He'll kind of lead you into a place where you're like, oh, this is a little bit different than I thought it is. And I think because of that, he has some weaknesses where he has to kind of give into the status quo, what we believe about things. And I think there needs to be some acknowledgement that like Scott has such, is so intense about good faith arguments that I think it actually muddies the waters of his argument a bunch of the times. Yeah. Okay. I, I did not read that Moldbug piece because I, I just can't read Moldbug at this point. He can be and, so annoying about the way he writes things. So I, I totally understand that. I like <laughs> this one, but it was very long. It was like 15K words. Yeah, I'm, I'm really disappointed that people were yelling at Alibot about that. I mean, I have objections to Scott and like some of what he does. And I, like, I, I think that criticism about him maybe bending over backwards to be inoffensive is I, I think it's probably correct. And I think it probably detracts from his work. I get why he does it. Totally. I, I think when he's more explicit about things, I mean, like the guy has a, you know, has, has an entire like subculture of people who hate him and anything that he says is going to be fodder for that. And like, I mean, the guy has just been mobbed too many times. I, I get it. But also, yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I don't, the 
idea that he would be beyond criticism, especially on substantial issues, you know, sure. like, you know, I, I say you disagree with whatever his like vibe with respect to eugenics is like, I get that. I don't know that I have an opinion about that either way, but like, yeah, disagree with him. I think that that aspect of politics is really like that throws me in particular. I think there's a certain amount of disagreement that gets thrown that, that just ends up suppressed necessarily whenever you're trying to form a coalition, like, and maybe you can, maybe you can discuss something among the in-group when nobody is watching, but you know, as soon as there's friction with the out group, that sort of thing just gets suppressed. And I, it makes me sad that that's been happening and that people were maybe mobbing Alibot about that. Cause like Alibot, you know, <laughs> totally fucking so, Alibot. But I, I'm going to throw that back at you because I think there's a necessity to do that kind of constriction. And we have to be very careful about how we do it. But yeah, like I'm to quote one of your tweets, like approximately, I paraphrase them. You said something like, I simply don't do things that are bad, right? Like you have this sense of what's good and what's bad and you feel like you just don't do things that make you feel evil. But yeah. we need to share enough of that sense in order to talk and that implies some kind of restriction, right? And so I think that's just, that that is the platform of communication and we have to accept that. And so there, there always are going to be these norms and throwing people out is part of a community. I just don't think there's any way around that. So, so can I just clear something up here where people... Like, is there an actual like community norm that it's bad to disagree with Scott and like air grievances about him? I don't because like all of rationalist thought is based on saying when you disagree with someone and then discussing it. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of such a norm, but I could maybe see something like that arising spontaneously, especially if say somebody's under attack. Like maybe it comes off as kind of um you know, a faux pas to go and criticize somebody along the same lines that the outgroup is doing when the outgroup is is trying to launch some kind of offensive. Does that make sense? Yeah, and mm -hmm. I agree. And, and I think also, like, think about it this way. Right now, I just criticize Scott. And, like, I don't think this is wrong, but the reaction is, well, he's under a lot of pressure and whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's exactly the same way we'd excuse our boss, even if we think they're a little bit of an asshole, but it kind of makes sense, right? Yeah. And I think that's the reality and it discourages a certain kind of discussion. I don't think anyone's getting, you know, thrown out of rationalists, you know, how would that even happen? But I think there is a kind of norm, even if it's not like enforced by insulting people. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know. I, I would almost say that like when there's this kind of an interaction, it's not even a matter of like, do you disagree with Scott on the basis of like this thing that he said or that thing that he said? It's, I mean, the, the subtext of all of this or the context of all of this is, you know, there's there's kind of a coalitional assault that's occurring. Exactly. And so like in that case, yeah, I mean, like it's not about what he said about eugenics per se. It's like, are you supporting which side in this conflict are you supporting? Which is the subtext to almost every political argument anyway. So like, I guess that's boring. Do you feel that egg profit? I'm curious. Do I feel I, I didn't quite uh... do you feel like do you feel this kind of inherent like, well, I could make this argument, but it would kind of be like ground down among a bunch of other minor concerns. And therefore, I probably won't make this argument because even though it's not explicitly, you know, denied media, I'm not denied the opportunity. It wouldn't go anywhere. That's kind of, that's kind of the level at which I think censorship happens in this community. 
I don't really believe in convincing people. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I, I don't make arguments with the goal of convincing people. Um, Absolutely. I try to convince people by being a cool guy and having people want to associate with me. Like I, or just like vibe, vibe based friendships and vibe based um, convincing people. I don't, I don't think that talking to someone about what you believe will really make them change what they believe all that often. Yeah, actually, I think that might be something that we've been missing as we've been talking about this. I, I, I agree with, or at least I think I tend to live in that, live in that space where I'm to the extent that I'm writing something, I don't have any expectation that anybody will agree with me about it. I mean, you know, I've even, even on this podcast, I've had people on with whom I disagree pretty deeply and I'm more interested in just hearing what they think about things. And I'm not necessarily trying to be convinced by anything that they say. And I'm definitely not trying to make them have the set of beliefs that I have, which whatever they happen to be, I'm not even sure about that. But it's just interesting to me to hear what they have to say and how they're looking at something. And that's sort of like, it feels like an anti-argument. Sure. No, I agree. And I think this is just somewhere in which I'm a very different person, not than everybody, but I think this is a smaller, like it's a minority of, of people where I think my identity, my internal thought process is very linguistic. And so I convince myself of things in language. That's how I think. And so I think my desire in a conversation is to really play things out. And I, mm -hmm. in some sense, I had to learn how to vibe by seeing the effect that it would have on discourse, essentially, and kind of backwards engineering what, it, what people meant by vibe. And yeah. I think mm -hmm. that, you know... Like, I, I, see, I see that a lot in our part of Twitter. Totally. Um, I think Amir has expressed the same kind of thing where he just doesn't know how to vibe. And it... Really? Yeah. And I mean, Amir is really good at just sitting in replies and talking about the things he likes. And I just think it takes a lot of cognitive energy out of him, um, which I guess it does for, it, it may for Crispy too. Maybe you can speak a little bit on that. Um, but it's, it's, it's just, it's not easy to, to, to shake the everyone just like me. Totally. Totally. I mean, so I think for me, it comes from just how I, grew up I, or I don't know maybe I grew up because of this but it's, it's definitely been there for a long time where I didn't like having friends till probably about middle school um whoa and I yeah <laughs> I, I live kind of a funny life one of the reasons for that which I feel like people always blame their parents for crap but I feel like my parents were the most possible supportive and because of that and because I had a lot of trouble getting along with other kids I just didn't talk to people so I read a lot and I thought a lot about things and that was just my world and so I didn't like vibe was not the way which things got with which things got done. Um, and I think if you start off with, you know, you're playing with kids and you want something to happen, vibing is exactly the way things have to get done. But I, I didn't experience that. And so I think I just have learned how to interact with the world in a completely different way that makes me think along these kind of, in many ways, more formal lines. That I actually identify with that description of childhood with the caveat that I always wanted to be able to vibe with other kids. <laughs> totally. I always felt a kind of resentment at them. I, I, I was like, 
why does this even make sense to you? Like, I, I would get frustrated about crap. Like, I would see, like, the, the teacher was being really nice to people on, uh, you know, student teacher, um, or sorry, parent teacher conference days. And I would tell other kids, and they would be like, what are you talking about? And why do I care? I'm going to go to this playground. And I would be like, don't you get it? We could be bonding over this. Yeah. Oh no. I, I mean, like I, I had, I think sort of like that. I mean, I remember, I mean, I remember when I told my first grade class that Santa wasn't real once I had figured that out and they, they were pissed. Totally. They, they were not happy with me about that. It's like, come on guys. I, I'm trying here. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. But I mean, it, it, I mean, Chris Pete, it seems like you, I don't know. So you're maybe you're not a natural viber, but would does what what is it like when everyone on Twitter is kind of vibing about things? Like, do you do you kind of want to poke them? A, a little bit, definitely. I want to poke them, but the truth is, I'm also a student of human nature. I think humans are the interesting thing to study, um, and so I feel like like I want to be the ultimate listener. And so I want to get really what people are saying. And so more than anything, it's an opportunity. I poke them a little bit, but I've gotten, I felt so bad about poking too many people out of their vibe that I, I've learned how to kind of not do that and fight myself over it. And so I think more than anything, I'm just fascinated. And I'm fascinated by how people in our general Twitter circles are so open to showing who they are. And I just feel like I learn a lot from that. And so in all in all, it's a very positive experience. Interesting. Okay. Um, do you have, do you guys have any idea how long we've been going? I usually have a timer. We've but... been going about an hour and a half, maybe a tiny bit less, but about that. Nice. Okay. I think we should probably wind down. We've covered yeah. so much territory. Um, <laughs> do you got maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe each of you want to give like shouts out to, to your top two favorite vibers on Twitter. <laughs> oh God, this is going to be tough. Hmm. My favorite Viber is uh, at Mycelium Mage. <laughs> yeah, I was. Oh, I was actually thinking about your your interactions with them. I was I was uh, creeping over your timelines earlier. Yeah, Mycelium Mage, go for it. Yeah, yeah, we're we're we're, we're good friends. Um, and uh, not sure a second one comes to mind, but he he and I he and I get along really well. So if I've if I've forgotten someone and. Uh, and yeah. you're angry about it, then at me. <laughs> My silly image can count for two. <laughs> I find this to be an incredibly uh, difficult question. I'm going to answer it with two things that I, I don't think are really fair either way. But I'll say somehow um, I'm, I'm deeply um, entwined with uh, at Lithros. I feel like he, oh, well, I don't feel like he, basically every part of my profile, the profile pick, the quote, the name is like, is like has been part, somehow touched by him. So I feel like we, we are kind of, you know, in some sense, twinsies there. But I have to say, so even before on main, um, that, that's in some ways my introduction to this entire space, at Literal Banana um, is is just a, a, a thing for me. I, I basically think that she's the best living philosopher. Um, and so I have to say her vibe speaks to me in a way that pretty much no one else does. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it. it's it's not always super explicit, but I mean, Literal Banana is, is, is the true Khalif. Totally. I think she's the hidden Khalif, but... I agree. Yeah. Ah. <sighs> Plus her. Okay, cool. Guys, it was it was an absolute delight talking with you. I think I've learned a lot of things, or at least gotten some new framings for things that 
maybe are going to be pretty helpful to me going forward. Um, really appreciate you guys just coming on and hashing stuff out and, and to the extent that you did vibing. It was a total pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was great. Thanks. All right, cool. Take care guys. Peace. Bye friends.